uh, appear on the screen as well. Romans 16, beginning with verse 25. This is God's word. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you again in the name of Jesus, asking um, for your aid. We pray that by your Spirit you would open the Scriptures to us, um, that we might um, behold you and see you, that you might speak to us in your Word, that you would work in us that which you would want to accomplish this morning for your glory and your honor. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We do pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So the, um, the San Gabriel Mountains, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, they sit just northeast of Los Angeles, California. And um, part of this mountainous region has become... Uh, quite the, the tourist destination. Though there's really nothing more than um, rocks and, and water and wildlife, to me that sounds horrible, um, there is one little spot that has become an absolute magnet for people. And it's called the Bridge to Nowhere. It, it's literally a, a bridge built for automobile traffic uh, to cross the San Gabriel River. The interesting thing about this bridge is, is that on each side of the bridge, as soon as the bridge ends, is a rock face. In other words, uh, each side of the bridge dead ends into the side of a mountain. Right? So um, even if you were able to drive there by car, which you can't, you can't get a car there physically, even if you were able to get a car on the bridge, your, your ride would last all of like five seconds across the bridge until you dead-ended into the side of the other side of the mountain, right? This, this, uh, you know, this, this well-built structure, this architectural structure is built between two cliffs and it, and it exists only um, for itself. It's a sound architectural structure. It can handle automobile traffic, but it exists only for itself. It doesn't lead anyone anywhere. Now, now there's a history behind the existence of that. But uh, what I want to communicate is, I don't think I'm too far off when I say that I think this bridge is a fair representation of what most of us, um, how many of us think about theology. We hear people talk about God, about his nature, about his work, about humanity and its state, about the church. We hear them uh, talk, you know, 
endlessly about, about baptism and the Lord's Supper, about the covenants, and, and we see them build uh, these massive and intricate detailed structures or, or systems of theology with their thoughts and words. And, and in, in our minds, it's a bridge to nowhere. Like, yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing structure. I mean, that thing is solid. That's well built. But it doesn't take us anywhere. We, we can't possibly imagine, just like we can't, you might be sitting here thinking, why did they build this bridge? We can't possibly imagine why they would spend the time and energy on, on, on filling out this, this robust, systematic theology. There's a, a pastor uh, named Mark Johnston. He wrote, a crucial litmus test in the authenticity of our theology is where it ultimately leads us. The truth of God expressed through theology must ultimately lead to full-orbed doxology. Or another way of saying this is, theology always leads to doxology. Right and sound and true words about God always lead us to praise of this God that is revealed in his word. Now, it's important to understand this because Paul has led us through the majestic corridors of truth in the book of Romans. He's taken us on a tour of this, uh, this many-faceted jewel that is the gospel. He started off with humanity's ruin and talked about God's wrath. He's talked about the, the grace that is in Christ Jesus and, and the salvation that is provided in, and, and secured in him. He's expounded the gospel's grandeurs in as, in as much as human words will allow. And there's nothing left to do at the end of chapter 16 but to break forth into praise. Like, it just has to happen. He, he's laid out the, the, the majesty of God and his work, and there's nothing left to do but to worship, but to praise. And so... He ends this work with doxology, with, with worship. He did it in chapter 11. He paused there for a moment, and he's doing it again so that theology can fully mature and fully flower into praise. And, he, and so he fittingly concludes this letter to the Roman church with, with, a, with this fit of praise at the end, almost um, uncontrollable praise. And again, obviously we could say that everything he has taught has led him to this moment of praise. But there's, there seems to be one thing on the front of his mind as he concludes this letter that leads him to this praise. And it's this, God's power to strengthen his people. Look at it with me in verse 25. It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. To him who is able to strengthen you. And I want to stop here for a moment, lest we kind of downplay or underestimate what it is that Paul's saying. But now to him who is able to strengthen you. He's saying God is able, God is powerful, God is strong to strengthen his people. And, and this strengthening isn't like a little incremental, like, oops, you got a little stronger there. Like you've been working out in the gym over months and you added some, some LBs on the end of the bar, right? That's not the strengthening he's talking about here. And the NASB actually translates, now to him who is able to 
establish you. It's the idea of, of fixing something firmly in place. It's the idea of permanence. That's the strengthening he's talking about here. One um, Greek dictionary describes the sense of the term here in this way. He says, the effect or aim of strengthening is the impregnability. Think of a, a castle, think of a fortress. Is the impregnability of Christian faith in spite of the troubles which have to be endured. So the rationale for Paul's worship is this. God is strong to make our faith strong. If, if God raises us from the dead and, and grants us the gift of faith, he ensures that our faith is impregnable, right? Like a fortress, like a castle. He will make our faith strong enough to resist, to withstand attacks, doubts, hardships, frustrations, even prosperity. The enemy's temptations will come, yes. But God gives us the grace to endure and to resist. Doubts will certainly consume our minds as, as we travel, as we sojourn in this life. But God has created a faith that is impregnable. He is able to strengthen us. He's able to establish us, to fix us firmly in place, immovable. Struggles against sin. You will, there, there will be seasons in your life when you will struggle against sin. They will, it, sin will persist. But these sins are not too great for him. The hardships of life will roll in. You'll face griefs, griefs you never thought that you could handle. Family issues, physical suffering, financial woes. But they are not able to squash God's work. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, establish you, fix you firmly in place, immovable, impregnable. And, and you think about it, this is certainly praiseworthy because we are completely and utterly unable to ensure our, our continuance, our, our, our um, perseverance on our own. We are unable to strengthen ourselves. We are unable to establish our own faith such that we'll endure those hardships, such that we'll get through those grievous times, so that we'll be able to get beyond the difficulties. Left on our own, we would be beaten down and crushed. Left to our own devices, we, we, would be, um, we would be squashed under the weight of life. We would be suffocated under the weight of life. Left on our own, we would falter and crumble. But this is God's work. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to establish you, to fix you firmly in place, immovable, impregnable. Salvation is God's work, and he must do it. We just sang about it. He must hold me fast. Yes, because on our own, it's impossible. And then the truth we sang, he will hold me fast. How can we sing that? Because here, in 1625, Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, he will hold you fast. So 
the question is then, how does God hold us fast? How does he establish us, fix us securely in place? By what means does he do that? And Paul describes it here exhaustively in verses 25 and 26. Look at it with me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So if you notice there, there are three according to um, phrases that are the means by which God secures us, strengthens us, establishes us, holds us fast. And, and these three according to phrases are really just one exhaustive way to make sure that nothing is left out of describing the gospel. According to the gospel, okay? That's the gospel. According to the preaching of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. According to the revelation of the mystery that was, that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed. What's he talking about there? What he's describing is the righteousness of God revealed in the Old Testament types and shadows. We, we, see, we, we see the sacrificial system pointing us forward to Christ's person and work. But, it, but it's now been made clear by the gospel spotlight shining on those types and shadows in the person, in the coming of Christ Jesus. So that the righteousness of God is clearly seen in the Old Testament. And then it's preached such that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be brought to faith and then respond in obedience. That's what those three according to's are saying. God redeems us, secures us, strengthens us, and sanctifies us through Jesus. You are not secured or strengthened by a worship experience. Uh, by a moment where you had goosebumps, by, by a song, um, by your best, most sincere efforts to, to ground yourself in, in God, but through the finished work of Jesus alone. The finished work of Jesus proclaimed in the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Period. End of story. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to secure you, to establish you, to fix you firmly in place according to my gospel, the proclamation of Jesus. So Paul is, is drawing us in, drawing his readers into this response of giving glory to God for a secure salvation in in Jesus. But let's make sure we don't lose Paul's emphasis here in this passage. To whom does the glory rightfully belong? Right? He starts off the passage, now to him, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Right? And then at the end in verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. To him, the, to him, the eternal, the only wise God. There, 
we're not in that picture. Do you notice that? We're, we're absent in that snapshot. God's grace in providing and securing salvation excludes all human pride and boasting. There isn't wiggle room for, for you and me to take credit for that, to feel good about our, our part in salvation. It's been rightly said that the only thing that the only part that you and I played in our salvation is is to provide the sin which made it necessary. Right? There's no room for you and I to boast to take credit in our salvation. Right? Since salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guess what? It's to the glory of God alone. You don't get a stake in that. That is salvation's end. That's its aim. God's glory is the aim of salvation. We are not ultimate in salvation. Sometimes we think we are. God's glory is the goal of salvation. The display of God's perfections in regenerating us, in, in justifying us, in sanctifying us, and ultimately in glorifying us is the aim. The display of God's perfection. Salvation isn't about you and me. Because ultimately, you didn't choose something that somebody else declined. Like, like do you want to take this extra coverage? No, I'll, I'll, I'll pass. It's not that you accepted that and they declined. It's about God and his display of goodness in your life, in, in granting you a gift, in raising you to life, in granting you a gift. We were not ultimate in God's affections such that he was, he was just you know, pacing back and forth, wondering how he could grab a hold of us. We were not ultimate in God's affections. He was. And, and for some of us, that makes us kind of shift uneasily in our seat. Because we kind of think that way. I don't know how many of you know my son Ezra. If you've never met my son Ezra, you need your life to be changed, and you need to meet my son, Ezra. <laughs> um, eight years old, and um, gosh, he's amazing. But he wants to be in every picture that is taken in his presence. <laughs> in his mind, it's not really a picture if he isn't in said picture. Right? It doesn't matter that you just sealed your vows with a kiss two minutes ago. If he's not in that picture, it's like, what is even happening up there that I am not in between this woman in this white dress and this man in this tuxedo? How am I not in this picture? That's just his outlook on life. And we too have this sense. We want to boast. Yeah, but I made the decision to trust God. I, I made the decision, right? And we're nudging our way into that picture with the triune God. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Hot tip, that's not you or me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. To the, to the eternal God, to the only wise God. This is the one who must get the glory. Salvation is all of unmerited, 
undeserved grace from beginning to end. From front cover to back. We really have no part in it. Therefore, God alone is worthy of our response, of our worship, of our praise. Now, some of you may think, yeah, but what is it like this word glory? What does it mean to glorify God? What does it actually mean? One pastor described it this way. I think it's a helpful framing of it. He says, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect this greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. Really, what it means is attributing or assigning to God dignity and worth and beauty and power and majesty. It means ascribing or, or assigning or attributing all those things to the only wise, eternal God. And we do this now by beholding and appreciating who he is and what he's done. We glorify God by, by looking to him, by exploring the things that he's revealed about himself in his word, his, his self-existence, his unchangeable nature, his triunity. We glorify him now by trusting in his word, not looking to other places for, for uh, consolation and hope and strength and, and assurance in the midst of life's uncertainties. We glorify him now by trusting in his word. We glorify him now by submitting to his kingship and his lordship. Despite your feelings, your passions, your desires, or, or despite the, uh, the, the kind of the cultural sensibilities our obedience would defy, we glorify him now by submitting to him as king. And we glorify him now by proclaiming his greatness to God's people, to our, to our family, to our friends, neighbors, coworkers. But what I want us to know is the, the emphasis in this passage isn't emptied on us glorifying him now, as, as good and necessary and wonderful as all those things are. Look, look at what Paul says in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul is talking about unending glory. That's what God is worthy of. Unending glory. There was a study done that demonstrates, um, a study done of like news for 2018, and demonstrates that the, the news cycle, the average news cycle of any story in 2018 was an average of seven days. So think about this. For one week, the biggest story, think of the biggest story you could think of in recent memory, the biggest story, they, they grasped uh, grasp our attention, they they involved our emotions. They consumed our energies. They, they prompted outrage. We had reactions. But for most of us, after only seven days, things simmered down. Right? We got bored. Other things were more attractive. We moved on. After only seven days, Right? 
So whether it was you know, the, something to do with our sports team, whether it was a, a political scandal, whether it was human tragedy, very few of us have the ability to continue to pursue, to investigate, to be annoyed by, to be outraged by, to celebrate anything for too long. That's just the reality of who we are as people. And knowing that human tendency makes, makes this passage of Scripture here in Romans 16 all the more remarkable because it says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. This is the worth, unending glory. This is the worth of which our God is worthy. There won't be a time where the attention, the, the praise, the honor, the glory, the worship, the dignity have exceeded God's worthiness. Right? It won't happen in a week. It won't happen in a year. It won't happen in 10,000 years. Right? When we've been there 10,000 years, when the last days, and no less reason to sing God praise than when we first began. To, to him, the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Glory for time and eternity. So what Paul's saying is this. Because God alone is able to eternally secure us in Christ. God alone is worthy of unending glory. Since salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is to the glory of God alone. And I, my prayer is that we as a people saved and secured by the Savior, redeemed, we would spend our lives beholding and proclaiming His glory. And in the words of the hymn, May we be done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Because God alone is able to eternally, eternally secure and save His people. God alone is worthy of unending glory. Would you bow your heads with me? Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we look to you now and we confess that we have not treated you, thought of you, responded to you, acknowledged you with the dignity and honor and glory that is fitting for you. You have secured us, established us, fixed us, immovable in your Son, Christ Jesus, Father. Make us grateful. May we spend our days in awe of you, beholding you, looking to you, and proclaiming your goodness 
in word and deed. May you be glorified in Renovation Church. May you be glorified in your people in this world. And may we join together with the throng around your throne. Sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain and purchased a people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. You are worthy of your glory. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has yet to acknowledge you as King, as Lord, as Savior. May you, by your Spirit, raise them to new life. Grant them the ability to trust in you now. That they may worship you for now and for all eternity. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.